Welcome to BSM, the book, song, movie podcast. I'm Tom Luckenhouse. This is my show. What are we all about here? Well, it's pretty simple. Book. What is your favorite book? What book did you read that blew your mind and kept it blown? Song. What is your favorite all-time song? Whether it's a song that played at your wedding or your prom, or whether it's a song that came on the radio at just the right time to keep you from doing something stupid. And a movie. What's your favorite there? What movie will you sit down and watch beginning to end every time uh, you see it on just because you love it that much? Today we're going to have that conversation with Dr. Susan Jennings Lance. Uh, Susan is an associate professor of business communications at West Virginia University. Go Mountaineers. Let's start with her favorite book, A Wrinkle in Time. Now, um, that's going to sound awfully familiar. Wasn't, wasn't that just our last podcast? Yes, it certainly was. Uh, episode three with Laura Little, her favorite book was also A Wrinkle in Time. So this answers the question of uh, whether we're going to allow duplicates on this show. And I say we certainly are because we're talking to a different person. Susan's got a totally different take on it than Laura. And, uh, you know, not only is it about the person, but I think it's like, you know, it's like a spread of tarot cards. Just because you have the same card, um, what you lay it down next to might change its meaning entirely. So let's talk about A Wrinkle in Time with Susan today. Her favorite song is Both Sides Now. That was a song written by Joni Mitchell, but uh, Susan prefers uh, a lighter version that's uh, performed by Judy Collins. And that's uh, actually got a harpsichord in it, which is uh, something you don't hear a lot in popular music. For her movie, um, Dr. Jennings Lance selected Jackie Brown. That's going to be our first foray into Quentin Tarantino territory. So uh, looking forward to that. Although I'm sure there will be more Tarantino movies to come in future episodes. What do you think? Can you get behind those choices? Well, it doesn't matter if you can, it doesn't matter if I can, because uh, Susan can, and she's going to tell us why right now. Thanks again for uh, agreeing to, to come on the podcast. Um, before we get into the uh, nitty gritty of your favorites, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, especially anything that might kind of affect uh, your choices in literature, music, and film? Okay. All right. So my name is Susan Jennings Lance. I'm a teaching associate professor of business communication at West Virginia University. Um, I actually have a PhD in English, uh, mostly because I decided I wanted to get a PhD. And I felt like if I was going to spend all this time working on a PhD, I should do it in something that I loved. And I love to read and I love to write and I love to watch films. And I mean, you know, that seemed like a good way to go. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's that's what I'm I, uh, my background. Uh, like I said, I currently teach business communication. I take students on a lot of study abroad trips and uh, I'm in charge of our campus read at West Virginia University. Um, every year we select a book and everybody on campus theoretically is supposed to read it. Um, a lot of our students are required to read it. Teachers teach it in their classes. Um, and we try to instill some big ideas for students to discuss so that when they have their dorm room philosophy sessions, they can draw upon some ideas that are that are, are popular in the in the 
American culture or, well, not necessarily American culture, in our general pop culture right now. Gotcha. Very cool. What, what was the book this year? Um, this year, our book was really an interesting book. Uh, do I have a copy of it here? Well, I think I have it at work. It was called Interior Chi Chinatown. It was a book by a man named Charles Yu. And it's really cool because it's written like a, a movie script. Okay. Like it mm -hmm. looks like a movie script. You open it up and even the type looks like a movie script. So if you're interested in reading it, don't listen to it on audible the first time, because it's kind of like, you won't get what's going on because there's a lot of, you know, background, this, that, and it's about, um, this, this person, this man who grows up in, uh, Chinatown, he's Taiwanese American. He's never been to China, but his parents are immigrants and about what it's like to grow up and feel like you're a stereotype or a, um, a typecast character. He refers to himself as like Asian guy, number three or something. And his, his goal in life is to be hung or um, Kung Fu guy, like his dad was Kung Fu guy. And it's about his life. Um, we were very fortunate. We were able to join Charles Yuri. He was able to join us on zoom and the students were able to ask him a lot of questions. Um, and I just read that his book is going to be made into a television series on HBO um, with the director. And I can't remember his name, Taka Yiki, or I don't know. He's the guy who does oh, our Taika Waititi. Yeah. Him. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah. He does res reservoir dogs and stuff. Yeah, res reservation dogs. Oh, I'm sorry, reservation dogs. <laughs> you, you've got a Tarantino movie today, so yeah. I think I have Tarantino on my mind. Reservation dogs, thank you. Big difference, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so anyway, that's coming up. So I'm really excited about that, but I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Very cool. Well, um, on the subject of books, your favorite A Wrinkle in Time was uh, was also selected by Laura Little um, yes. in, in, in episode three. And not entirely coincidence since you were referred by 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 Laura. Mm -hmm. um, but let, let's get into your take on it, how, how you kind of came across it, how Wrinkle in Time got to be your favorite. Okay, so I grew up in rural West Virginia. My mother was an English teacher. My dad was a coal miner. Um, I literally grew up out in the woods. Um, I'll send you a picture of my house and you'll see how far out in the woods it is. It's okay. the only thing I've ever posted on Reddit that got a lot of upvotes um, was this picture of, of this little red house I lived in in the woods because it it is, I, I put it on a subreddit called cabin porn because it's just <laughs> a little cabin out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so we were pretty isolated. Uh, I went to a very rural school when I discovered A Wrinkle in Time when I was about 10 years old, um, and I read it, I read a lot, it really spoke to me because it was about a girl who was, went to school in a, in, a, in a rural area, although in her case it was New England, who was smart, who was different, who had crazy wild hair like mine, <laughs> um, who didn't fit in at school, who loved her family very much, and had to go off and have this great adventure. It was sort of like a um, buildings roman or a hero's journey, but for a girl mm -hmm. almost. Yeah. And um, I was very taken by that. I just thought that it was well, even as a child, I thought it was well-written. I thought the story was engaging. I thought the story was smart. It didn't pander. Um, it wasn't like a lot of the other books written for young people at that time or at least in my school library. And we're talking about, you know, when I was 10 years old, it was 1979. So 
there was adolescent fiction at that time. There was young adult fiction, but not a lot of it. Most of it was very depressing. Um, and then it was about stuff like mental illness and, and you know, the horrible things that happened to you. Or it was leftover stuff from the 60s and early 70s, like Mr. and Mrs. Bojo Jones or 17th Summer, which were books that were about how great it is to fall in love and get married. And that's not what this book was about. This book was about what it's like to be an adolescent who doesn't fit in, who's smart, who needs to do big things. And yeah. it spoke to me. I so, mean, there were so many great things about it. Yeah. So it's been your favorite since since you were 10 years old? Yeah. I was talking to my husband about this yesterday. And I, because I said, all right, I was supposed to pick my favorite book, my favorite movie, my favorite song. And we were saying it's very difficult to pick your favorite of anything. Right. It's easier to give a top 10 list, right? Mm -hmm. um, in no particular order. One of the reasons that I will die on this hill um, with A Wrinkle in Time, there are a couple of reasons. One of them is that it is short enough so that I could pick it up and read it in an evening, okay, um, or a weekend. And it's sort of like comfort food. Mm -hmm. I remember when I went to college, I would be all stressed out during the week and I would be working on my homework and Friday would come and I would go. I remember exactly where the children's and young adult literature section was of our college library. It was in an area for people who were um, elementary ed majors to take a library science class in children's literature, but anybody could check the books out. So I would go check out books like A Wrinkle in Time. There were a few others um, that I could read quickly, that made me feel comfortable, that made me feel at home. It's sort of like the meatloaf and mashed potatoes of, of reading. Yeah. Everything was okay while I was reading that. Yeah, it's funny. I've used that exact same phrase to describe some of my favorites, comfort food. That's uh, Yeah, yeah, um, it's comfort food. But it's comfort food that's smart. I mean, mm. it's comfort food that says, you know, life is messy and complicated and things, horrible things can happen in your life. In, in the particular, the character, um, Meg Murray, was... Um, uh, the whole thing is like her father's disappeared. And so she sets out in search of him through some mystical wise women, you know, who mm -hmm. come along and show her how to, to um, uh, move on to uh, another planet to figure out how to find her father. My father, when I was in college was not missing. All right. He wasn't gone, but he did get um, a really uh, horrible form of cancer and he oh. died while I was in college. Was that related to his work? Interestingly enough, yeah, uh, it may have been. Um, mm. It was something that he was a Vietnam era veteran. And mm. if I suspect that he was exposed to Agent Orange while oh. he was in the military. However, we have no proof of that because he wasn't actually in Vietnam. He was in Turkey and he was in Japan, as far as we know. A lot mm. of things were classified. But anyway, Agent Orange does cause this type of cancer. Is And also Radar does, and he worked with Radar. Okay, so I can't prove it, but I kind of think maybe it was a result of that. Wow. All right, so anyway, um, he was very young when he died. And during my time in college, he was being ripped away from me, literally. I mean, bodily being ripped away. And... I think that, you know, I often have awful, often thought that the metaphor of um, Meg Murray going somewhere to find her father may also have loosely been the idea that a lot of families were breaking up at that time. I mean, we're mm. talking the, the 60s and 70s and 80s here. We're talking about a time when divorce was on the rise. There were a lot of single parent families, a lot of marriages were breaking up because our parents, who tended to be members of the silent generation, were um had gotten married too young and and were 
finding themselves. It was like, you know, what happens after Mad Men, you know, <laughs> was yeah. what my childhood was. And um, in fact, I always joke, one of the characters in Mad Men, Mad Men was born at exactly the same time one of the characters or it was born at exactly the same time my husband would have been born and i'm always like you're the baby on mad men man. <laughs> um uh but uh i think that that part of the reason that a lot of people like this book is that it is not unusual to be a girl who doesn't fit in in a messy world trying to take care of adult things and i was doing that as a college student but i think a lot of people were dealing with their parents divorce I also think that the, the the fact that the whole goal of the book was not about romance. Um, mm -hmm. There was a character in the book that eventually, if you read all the sequels, Meg marries, but that's okay. Eventually I got married, but that doesn't mean my interactions when I was 10, 12, or even 17 were about romance. They were about just trying to take care of everybody's messy life. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting you brought up the, the hero's journey because I, I, I certainly noticed too, it fits very neatly in the arc of the hero's journey. And I, I'm just wondering if, if, you know, you, you, you know, having a PhD in English could help me figure out I've, several of the books and films I'm talking about. I mean, this relates to um, the Hobbit we recently did that seems to fit ne neatly in that arc too. But I mean, the Hobbit came was written before Joseph Campbell um, wrote the hero with a thousand faces and kind of defined the hero's journey. So that seemed to be very organic. And on the other end, I've got a film coming up for somebody who just picked the original star Wars. Now star Wars also following the hero's journey, but deliberately taking, you know, Joseph Campbell's work and writing it in that arc um, in, in a more of an artificial way. So, I mean, this one seems more organic, but um, do you think the fact that Joseph Campbell defined that just makes, makes people follow the pattern more, more artificially than just organically kind of falling into it? Well, I mean, if you really want to get, first of all, do you know what year uh, the Hero's Journey came, or the uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces came out? Um, it was, I think, late 40s, I believe. Okay, just curious. Yeah. Um, I was exposed to Hero with a Thousand Faces when I was like in high school because it was on PBS or something. There was a PBS. Oh, yeah. Program. And I remember yeah, with Bill watched, Moyers. Yeah, yeah, Bill Moyers. So in my yeah. mind, Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell are intertwined. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you want to get technical about it, the hero's journey started, I mean, you know, we hero's journey is also organically set up by uh, somebody like um, uh, uh, Beowulf. Uh, it's also what you see in the Iliad. It's what you see in the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, you can go back. Many people have suggested the, the story of Jesus. I haven't checked too much into it, but I'd be willing to bet we could make Buddha fit to there too. I mean, I think it's, yeah, I think know, it's Campbell nice. did. Yeah. Did say they both fit yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's nice that Joseph Campbell came up with that. I don't think that Madeline Lingle knew about the hero with a thousand faces yeah. when, when she wrote it, I'll point out though, that for a long time, I have thought that, there is a version of the buildings Ramon, the hero's journey that's a, a woman's journey which is a little bit different than the than the men's journey part of my dissertation was about um films well my dissertation was about children in films of the 1930s one whole chapter of that dissertation was about um the movie the wizard of oz and i i've often thought it was interesting that both dorothy in the movie the wizard of oz and um uh meg murray in a wrinkle in time 
set off on this journey, but the journey can never be proven. It's not a physical journey. It's almost in their mind, right? Mm. Um, and and they're they're going off to kind of somehow save their their domestic life. Okay, so. Um, for example, um, Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz is trying to get her dog back and worried about what's going to happen when the, the rich lady down the road kind of, um, uh, kind of, kind of destroys the domesticity that they ha she has there with Annie M and Uncle Henry and, and she has run away, but she's now thinking, oh, I can't run away. And, and, um, you know, there's a lot of turbulence and a lot of that comes about because she is becoming an adolescent and her body is changing her life is changing and what's she going to do with her life mm -hmm. that's the same stuff that happens with meg murray and in, in both cases like in theory meg murray travels through time and space but when it's all over there's no proof that she's traveled through time and space uh, she ends up in the same place in the vegetable garden with her father that's the only proof she has and in the case of dorothy there's no proof that she's traveled anywhere she's yeah. In bed and she's hit her head. That makes and, me think of contact that the, the, the novel in the movie, the Jodie Foster movie, where she took this trip she couldn't prove. No, it's exactly it's the same thing. I mean, yeah. it's sort of like women take this journey, but we can't prove it. But it it still it still manages to um uh and, and then they all have, I mean, it's like Hero with a Thousand Faces in that they're always um uh two different uh little people following them, you know, like R2D2 or C3PO, but in yeah. In um, in the Wizard of Oz, of course, you have Toto, and you have um the, the other, you know, the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man. You always have these companions. In uh, A Wrinkle in Time, you have um uh Char or I'm sorry, what's the guy? Calvin, mm -hmm. and you have Charles Wallace, and then eventually you have the father. You have a uh, call to action that everybody refuses originally. I mean, you know, right. it follows the whole whole pattern if if you really pay pay attention to it. Yeah. But I think that with with girls somehow in literature or somehow in culture, we somehow make it be part of their mind and not part of and and, and it's always about domesticity. I mean, Meg mm. is her father home she's she's getting her brother she's bringing her father home she's re um organizing the domestic sphere in which she lives so that her mother won't be alone and they won't say nasty things about them in the in the um village that they live in right and same thing again with um uh dorothy she's she's rearranging that domestic sphere so for better or for worse i think that's how it kind of all plays out that's that's really interesting. hadn't hadn't heard that before. Um, I, I'd asked Laura about just uh, the simplicity of the language, and you mentioned you, one of the things you love is you can read it in an evening. And uh, Laura had said that she thinks that you know the ideas are so complicated you have to use simple language. Would you yeah. agree with that? And if you do, do what? What do you think some of those um, ideas are that uh, that uh, need to be put in that simple language? Well, I mean, well, and I want to throw into not just simple language, but a very simple um setting that's beautiful at the same time like i one of the images i'm left with <clears throat> is when meg is up in her um attic room and there's a storm outside and she can hear it and there's a kitten on in, in bed with her mm -hmm. boy haven't we all been there where we're curled up in bed and there's a wild uh windy stormy night outside and you've got a pet next to you and you're all cozy mm -hmm. um and boy domestic sphere you know and um then uh, you, uh, uh, the, there, there's a line in it where she goes downstairs and um, her brother is making a sandwich and her mother's wandering about and 
is it Mrs. Witch who shows up first or Mrs. What's it? One of them comes in and they say, oh, it's a windy night. And she says, oh, wild nights are my glory. <laughs> I love that line, wild nights are my glory, because I, I mean, you know, the wind is whipping outside, but I'm in this cozy space, but I kind of know I'm going to have to go out and do things. And is that not, you know, the world that you live in when, when you're a kid and you have a happy family, you live in this space, but you know you're growing up and you're going to go have to go out and slay the demons and fight the monsters. Mm -hmm. um, I just love that imagery. Um, and by the way, that's one of the things I didn't like about the latest movie, the one with Oprah Winfrey. Um, is, was, is what? Um, you know, they made a, a movie of A Wrinkle in Time. It was supposed to be great when it came out. And they move it to California. <laughs> and it's not New England. And, the, and, and I love the main character. They had a wonderful little actress playing the main character. Um, the young woman did a great job. But but there was, I mean, it was a California storm. It wasn't a New England storm. And there's a very mm. difference between that, you know, those two atmospheric areas. Anyway, so back to the, the, the big ideas in the simplistic language. Or maybe not back to it. I mean, this idea that you are cozy and you are safe and you're going to have to go out and do something is a big idea. And it's a huge idea that's looming over every adolescent. And I think that in, when we discuss literature aimed at males, we talk about going out and slaying demons in terms mm -hmm. of having swords and, and that sort of thing. But in the, in the, um, in the situation of Meg Murray, she's got to go out and put her family back together again and save her brother from the evils of communism, which is what Madeline Lingle meant for um, the, the land of Kazmots or whatever it was where they're all, yeah. you know, but, but, but I mean, you know, Kamazot's another thing about it. Um, Everybody in Kamazots does everything perfectly in line. They're perfectly synced. The parents come out and clap their hands twice and the children come in and everybody is beautiful and the houses all are all ticky tacky and look just the same. And, and it's very clear that conformity is the name of the game. Those books, that book was written in the 1960s when conformity was exploding, right? And when you're an adolescent girl, do you and, and you have wild hair and you're smart and people think you're stupid or you, they think you're weird or they think you're so strange that they don't know how to, to, to slate you in school. That rebellion against conformity is a very important thing. And well, I especially for that generation, I guess, and it's like talking about the 60s. I mean, look at the way that it ended. Well, it came out in 69. So it came out like when it's all ending and it's all coming down. But even if we're an adolescent girl and in, in like when I in 1980 or whatever, when I was reading it, I mean, anybody, any girl who goes to a junior high school or a middle school can tell you that conformity is just it's horrible. It's horrifying. Mm -hmm. uh, middle schools are horrible places and fighting against that conformity and trying to figure out who you are and dealing with your messy, the messy world is, is a tough thing. Yeah. So is there anything that after 60 years um, of this book being out uh, or did, that do you think didn't hold up or, or would have to be approached differently if it were rewritten today? Um, I don't think that I would have felt it necessary to put the character of Calvin in as somebody who eventually is a love interest. I think it would have been better if he'd just been some guy, which he pretty much was, yeah. you know, um, I think also you know, when it was written and when I read it, it was unusual to have a mother who worked outside of the home. And that all changed in the 80s mm -hmm. um, or a mother who worked outside, the, a mother who's a professional. Um, and so, you know, that that part of it was a little like 
you know, like the, the twins were always worried that the mother was cooking something weird over the Bunsen burner. Um, and so that gender role thing, I think, would have changed significantly if it gotcha. were written now. Um, those are the biggies. I mean, you know, like they're a little bit of time and place, like um, where they lived um, didn't have, I mean, you know, you could tell it was very rural and it was treated a certain way. And like people go to the post office, people don't go to the post office now, yeah. but I don't think any of those are deal breakers. They, don't go, to, they go to the post office and um, a uh, little house in the prairie and people still read those books. So I don't feel like it's, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't feel like a, a kid would read it now and not know what's going on. I think they would just say, okay, this was written 60 years ago and move on with them. All right. Um, I, I brought up with Laura a couple um, couple of passages in the book that uh, that were I mean, pretty clearly theological, and that's n not common in, in science fiction type of story. Um, do you do you think that that added something, or um, you know, m my my point there was I feel like some some people shy away from that, and then it might you know filter out some of the audience. But uh, but uh, do you think it was an important component that really you know needed needed to be included? Or? Well, I think that one of the things I really loved about it was that it it not only wove in uh, theology, but it, it wove in art and beauty in, in the humanities. Like there's a part in it where they're talking about people who fought against the light and they say, you know, Jesus. OK, and then they say Shakespeare and then they and, and like there's a point at which somebody is is reciting the Gettysburg Address in order to keep the the conformity from taking over their mind. Um, and and they bring up a lot of um, and, 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 and forgive me, I've read a lot of Madeline Lingle's work, so she does this a lot in a lot of her books, mm -hmm. but they're always throwing in the names of, of uh, great composers and great pieces of music. And I never thought it was any more overtly theological than it was also interested in the canon of great art from western civilization now, i will tell you this is one thing that that might change if it were written now if if i were writing something like that now i would have thrown in people like buddha and mm -hmm. i would have thrown in um great artists from other cultures i mean it is very obviously a product of the western canon um but i mean madeline lingle herself was a product of the western canon and probably yeah get the chance to run off to Thailand or China or Africa or any of the places I've been. So, you know, I'm not going to hold that against her, but I would open it more a bit, I think. Great. Well, um, since, since I've already talked to, through some of my other questions with Laura, I think uh, I, I might want to move on to the song. Okay. This is okay. any other okay. points you want to. Can, can I, can I tell you one story that Absolutely. I Laura told you? All right. So Laura told you, I'm sure that we bonded over this book when we met each other, because I think we were both kind of fish out of water in high school and we kind of got this love of a great book. And and so anyway, we we grew up and moved on with our lives. And I had two sons. I had twins and I named one of them after my father. I named him Maurice Jennings Lance. And um, but I said, we're going to call him Murray. OK, everybody said, all right. And I thought, now we're going to spell it M-U-R-R-Y. Okay, now I don't know why I thought that, because usually people spell the name Murray M-U-R-R-A-Y. In fact, where I live, there are tons of people, some of whom I'm related to, who have the last name of Murray, and that's how it's spelled. We have friends with the last name of Murray, and it's spelled with an A. Mm -hmm. However, I, I just always knew it was going to be M-U-R-R-Y, which has caused no end of trouble because now everybody writes it the wrong way on, you know, when they get him a blanket or whatever. Of course. So 
I said to Laura after they were born, I'm sitting there all postpartum. Laura took off a week of work to come take care of me because I was such a mess. I said, I don't know why I wanted to spell it this way. I, I just did because I thought that's the way you spelled Murray. And she said, of course you did. That's the way it's spelled in a wrinkle in time. <laughs> so you hadn't even realized. Yes, yeah, so subconsciously, that. I named my my kid after the Murray family, and and it's spelled without the a. Um, and I keep telling my son he's just lucky I didn't name him Charles Wallace. <laughs> yes, especially if you can't abbreviate <laughs> under Charlie or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, yeah. If we if we can move on to your your song. Um, your song was Both Sides Now, which is written by Joni Mitchell, right? But but the right. version that, that is your favorite is by Judy Collins. So um, what's what's the story with that? Okay. So the, the Judy Collins one is the one that's all light and has the, right? Yeah, with the harpsichord in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, it was tough for me to come up with a song that is my favorite song. Um, mm. Because at any given moment, my favorite song is different, right? Um, and the problem with songs are that you can listen to them and listen to them and listen to them, and then you get kind of sick of them. So then it changes what my favorite song is. But this is a song I could just listen to and listen to. And it came out, my mother said when I was a little kid, when I was a baby, and it would come on the radio, I'd dance around to it. Um, and I just, you know what? I just love that song because it's the growth of a woman, right? Um, she starts out talking about uh, how she's looked at clouds and how, you know, at first they're beautiful and then they're maybe not so beautiful. And, and then maybe you just have to learn to love them for what they are. And then she talks about that as it has to do with life, you know, um, you, or excuse me, not life, but love. She does love secondly. And mm -hmm. about how, you know, it's all the fairy tales come real, the dizzy dancing way you feel, that kind of stuff. And then she goes to, but sometimes it can be problematic. And, you know, there there's a dark side to this. And then eventually you just have to accept that it's, it's not good, it's not bad, it just is. And then she finally ends up in the third verse with life. And life is that way, you know. Life can be great and life can be not so great. But at the end, you just have to know who you are and move through it. And I've always just thought that was a very empowering song i don't know and also i like the harpsichord <laughs> is, is that uh, is that why you prefer this version to the Jerry yeah I, version? I like all the you know la, 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 i mean it definitely has a lighter tone i mean Joni yeah. mitchell's version seemed to be pretty heavy and, yeah uh, oh yeah yeah and i mean it is it is heavy but it's also light i mean when you get to the part about love the dizzy dancing way you feel when every fairy tale comes real come on we've all looked at love that way um uh but I've looked at life from both sides now. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the idea that you just come in and you make it great and you be who you are and it's going to be okay because you're a wise person and you, you know that there are two sides to everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that. And it still can be fun. Yeah. It, it, it's funny. Cause, um, just recently did that, uh, kiss song that, uh, that, uh, Greg Garst, one of my guests <laughs> had and, and his uh, favorite song was a hundred thousand years. And, 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 Talking about his song, he's like the, the lyrics don't even matter. <laughs> it's like, there's no point. All it all it was is, is about how it evokes. You know, it's it's evocative of a feeling that the, the the lyrics were secondary. This song seems the opposite to me. That I mean, these lyrics are, are they're they're heavy. They're deep. Um, I mean, they I, they stand alone as you know a poem without any melody. I I think. 
Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm pulling up the lyrics here right now just to um I think that the lyrics are the most important part. I mean, I would love this song no matter what. I just like the happier version of it. Um but the part about um but now old friends, they're acting strange. They shake their heads and tell me that I've changed. Well, something's lost and something's gained in living every day. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, you can't always be Pollyanna, happy, Ferris wheels, wee person. Um, you have to kind of lean into it. However, you also move along and you become wise. And boy, boy, that just describes it all, right? Yeah, it does. And and you say becoming wise. I mean, she ends each of those those, those patterns with uh, about the clouds, about uh, love, about life with saying, you know, I, I don't know anything about it at all. So, I mean, that's what the essence of like Socratic wisdom, right? right. Knowing your own ignorance. So, yeah, yeah. That, that seems to seems to be at the heart of it. This what is it? Uh, the the wise man knows what he doesn't know, but the or the fool doesn't know what he doesn't know. But the wise person knows what he doesn't know. <laughs> right. We, we we're sounding a little Donald Rumsfeld right now, but we have a no one knows. <laughs> Don't want to do that. <laughs> um, I, another thing I thought was interesting in in that kind of pattern too is um, she for each of those things she mentions how, how she only what remembers her illusions about clouds, about uh, love, about life, and and I, I, I was just just wondering if you if if that you know rings true to you with in life's experiences that you can't really remember the, the reality of something it's just your interpretation or if that's just an inherent truth in in human memory that uh, that's all, all we can remember is our own um you know our, our own processing and interpretation of events and, and not uh, the reality i think that's true i mean what is they've even figured out that eyewitnesses to to crimes don't even know what the heck happened because they begin to remember it differently immediately. Like you, you yeah. process it in such a way that you remember it differently. And I mean, I, I certainly remember remember many painful things about my past. I'm sure everybody does, but I don't. I try really hard not to dwell on those because it just makes you miserable, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And isn't that what art is, by the way? I mean, <laughs> the ability to process life and the world around you in such a way um that it gives your interpretation of it isn't that what we do when we write isn't that what we do when um with people who are artists who who draw and paint isn't that what they're doing isn't that what photographers do when they we give you a fascinating picture um and i think it's what musicians do we take something and we we take chaos and and we put it into an order that reflects our interpretation okay. i'm trying to process that <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I guess I'm 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 always trying to um see see a, a bridge between um you know the 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 general and the specific that it's you take take chaos and and put it in such a pattern that it reflects something you know universal. And maybe you're saying the the, the same thing. I'm not sure. Um I, I think I am, but what I'm saying is you make it universal, but you put your own spin on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like my interpretation is always going to be different from your interpretation, but we can both put an interpretation out there that other people understand. Yeah. Like Joni Mitchell and Judy Collins. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Um, do do you mind if I move on to the movie now? Not at all. So um, your movie is Jackie Brown, directed by Quentin Tarantino. And I'm actually uh, working on another Tarantino film at the same time. So I feel like I'm um, knee deep in Tarantino. Uh, someone else had picked Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but uh, yours is, is Jackie. Kill Bill. <laughs> 
but yours is Jackie Brown and and uh, how, how, that's a 1997 release. Uh, how did that one become your favorite? Yeah. So, okay. So like everybody else, <clears throat> when it came out, I went off to the movie theater back when we went to movie theaters. Do you remember that when we went to movie theater? <laughs> Vaguely. Yeah, there was a time, the before times. But anyway, I went off to the movie theater and I saw um, uh, the the movie Pulp Fiction. Okay. And I thought like everybody else, it was the most fascinating thing in the world. And I have to add to that, that my sons, when they saw Pulp Fiction, really liked it, but were not blown away by it in the same way that I was. And I keep saying to them, but you don't understand, we'd never seen a movie like this before that was, you know, that everything was taken apart and put back together and in a different order. And it was just so wild and fresh. And then I felt like my mother describing Hemingway or something. But anyway, um, so I love Tarantino. And then I went back and I watched Reservoir Dogs and I love that. And then Jackie Brown came out. And I really love Jackie Brown. Now, Jackie Brown's not like the rest of his films. They're not like any of his films, really. Mm -hmm. Here's why I like Jackie Brown. I like Jackie Brown because, number one, um, I love I love the main um, actress, um, whose name I'm is escaping. Uh, Pam Greer, yeah, yeah, Pam Greer. Yeah, because I love her because Pam's like in her 40s in that in that movie, and she's beautiful, but she looks like a woman who's seen some shit. You know mm -hmm. what? Excuse me. You can cut that out. And oh no, it's fine. <laughs> I didn't know if I was allowed to curse, but she does. She looks like, you know, she's seen some stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, she also, there's a, there's a great moment in it when um, she sits down and she is trying to decide, is she going to, is she going to turn Ordell over or is she going to, is she going to start over again and um, turn yeah. in Ordell or is she going to stay where she is or, or what? And anyway, you could tell that starting over to her at this point in her life was way scarier than some two-bit hitman that Ordell was, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, like starting your life over, you can only do it so many times. And it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of work. And she'd been there. And the thing that I love about that is, first of all, Pam Greer is famous for being in all those black exploitation films. And I don't know if you've seen any of them, but and I haven't seen I mean, I haven't like sat down. I, I have never been able to sit down and watch a whole one because it looks like it's a little more than I can take. Mm -hmm. But, you know, some of those films were like women on women in prison and all yeah. kinds of stuff. And I mean, she, she lived through some of the worst of what they were doing in Hollywood with black actresses. And she's seen some stuff. She lived through the civil rights movement. She lived through things like being naked in the movie coffee. And here she is. And she totally knows what's happening. Um, and she's making a calculated decision based on the fact that she knows what life is like. She she's past, you know, she's in middle age and she has made a decision that she's smarter than these men. And she's going to get out of the situation because she always knew she was smarter than the guys that, that she was messing around with here. And, and she's just going to act on it. And I love that. I just love it because you yeah. never see a movie like that ever, ever. I mean, it's taken us years to get to the point because of the Bechtel test. Are you familiar with the Bechtel test? No, I'm not. Oh, 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 okay. So this is really interesting. Alison Bechtel, who wrote a book called Fun Home, um, but she also used to to write a comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For. Um, and Fun Home has won all these awards. It was made into a Broadway play and it was about 
this woman who discovers that she is gay, um, which I think it's a, a, a memoir of Alison Bechdel and it's a graphic novel and it's a whole thing. My husband used to own a comic book store. So graphic novels or something oh. else I'm interested in. Okay. Alison Bechdel in her, in her comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, has a spot in it where one of the characters says to another that unless a movie is about has a scene in it where two women talk to each other about something other than a man she's not interested in watching it okay so that's the bechtel test are there two female characters who have a conversation about something other than some man okay now name some movies that do that for me <laughs> um let's see <laughs> nothing's First leaping to mind <laughs> Does it require dogs to it? Does I mean I can list a ton of movies. Very few do it. Within the last, I would say, five years, people have started to talk about the Bechtel test. Now, this all came, I mean, she came up with this like 20 years ago. But in the last five years, they've started to talk about it. And because they've started to talk about it, you'll see these scenes in movies where two women will have a brief conversation about something other than men, and then they'll go back to whatever they were doing with all the male characters. Um, for example, Rogue One, when it came out, because I, I talk about this a lot, and I have two sons and a husband, and we go to the movies a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll they'll say, it passed the Bechtel test. It didn't pass the Bechtel test. You know, That's like funny. it's a joke we have. But it isn't, I'm, this is not just something I dreamed up. This is a thing. You can look mm -hmm. it up on my B-E-C-H-D-A-L test. All right, now back up. So what I loved about Jackie Brown when it came out in 1997 is that Jackie Brown makes a calculated decision to do something. She's middle-aged. She, she draws upon the woman she has become. She knows life from both sides now. Um, like, like I like the through line. <laughs> okay. She, she, she knows about the messy world that's out there like Meg Murray. Okay. She, she understands that she has to think about this and use her wits and it's a Tarantino movie. So people are getting shot left and right and up and down and over and under brutally in ways you never expect. And mm -hmm. Jackie Brown never picks up a gun the entire time. Well, no, excuse me. She does pick up a gun, but she never shoots anybody. She never kills anybody. Everybody else is killing everybody else and doing all this stuff. Not Jackie oh, Brown. Oh, sorry. She steals Max Cherry's gun out of his. Yeah, but but she doesn't kill anyone, right? She is smart. She uses her wits, and I mean anybody can see that Odell or Dell or whatever his name is is a complete idiot, and she knows that. I mean, it's almost there's a point in it where he's thinking and he's thinking and he's like, "It's Jackie Brown." Like it takes him a while to come up with who is doing you know doing this. Mm -hmm. Just love the ability that she had to say, okay, I'm smart. I've seen life. I've seen love. I've seen it all. I've, I've had to deal with a lot. I'm not starting over. I can do this. And she does. Oh, I love, love the through lines. Uh, but I mean, I, I completely agree that, I mean, Pam Greer was amazing in this and, and it kind of blows my mind that she didn't have prominent roles following this up even you know in in, in the, the decade following she never did anything as big again I, I i don't understand that i don't know if that's just uh you know lack of opportunities or, or do you do, do you follow her career at all and i mean enough to a couple of thoughts about this yeah it's hell to be a woman in hollywood past the age of 30 everybody knows that i mean i'm and, and the fact that Quentin Tarantino actually wrote this movie for her because you know that the legend is Quentin Tarantino ran a, a um, he was running like a, a video uh, cassette store, like a blockbuster. Mm. Yeah. And he watched all these old movies and he ran into her and he said, I'm writing a movie for you. I am writing a movie for you. Cause he loved all the, the old films that she was in. 
And um, and so he wrote this movie for her based on the book Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. And I've read Rum Punch, and it's nothing compared to Jackie Brown. I mean, it's a good book. It is a good book. I love Elmore Leonard, but but I got to tell you, at the end of the day, this film is just way better because Jackie Brown so embodies this woman who has seen it all, who knows what's out there, and 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 can just do it. And I don't think there are a lot of roles like that in Hollywood. I mean, what's she going to play? Is she going to play somebody's grandmother? I mean, it's hard to be a woman in Hollywood over the age of 30. And mm. the few roles that are out there are certainly for white women. I mean, unless you're writing, I mean, look at what people like Viola Davis have had to do in order. Um, Viola Davis is a very famous African-American actress who's who who has done tons and tons and tons of work and she's fabulous and she just, just put a book out i think yeah well but she just recently i haven't read the book so i don't know um finally was getting some some recognition from the academy even though she has been for so many years such a wonderful wonderful talented person so no there aren't roles for people like pam greer she's yeah. an anomaly and a lot of women who were over the age of 50 on a lot of levels feel that way. I mean, I talked at the beginning about what it's like to be an adolescent that everybody thinks is weird. Um, there's another kind of whole thing in female, um, in, in, in gender studies about um, the fact that many women feel like they become invisible after the age of 50 because they're not the ingenue anymore. They're not um, potential sexual partners for a lot of people and people just don't listen to what they have to say. Um, and I think in the case of, of Pam Greer, I mean, she's, she's over 50. Yeah. Yeah, I think Amy Schumer had a, a really brutal skit about that uh, that that point you're making before she she brought in Julia Louis Dreyfus and they said it's her last fuckable day. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, well, I have another theory about this too. Um, I think that that if you're a woman, and and this doesn't just mean if you're an actress, but if you're a woman, you kind of fit into various. Um, how do I want to put it? Uh, you're slotted in to various roles. And when you're from about 16 until you're about 35, you're the fuckable ingenue. You're somebody that somebody might want as a sexual partner and you're judged no matter what your other qualities are, you're judged on how good looking you are and how likely somebody is to want to have sex with you. Even if you don't want to have sex with them, that's how you're judged. And then if you are if you end up having children, okay, and you're kind of like that 30 to 40-ish range, you're the mother, okay? My life changed considerably when I had children because I was never much of the fuckable ingenue because I've always been a big woman and I've always been kind of loud and I tell people what I think. Um, I'm sure that will be shocking to you. Um, <laughs> But I, when I had two sons, everybody was like, oh, we get it. She's the mother. And so people would talk to me about my children. They would talk to me about my husband. You know, I was the mother. And so it was okay. Now I've moved on into the world of, of I'm the older woman. Okay. And I'm very fortunate because I have a degree. I have a job. I have enough money. I'm white. And it makes a difference. It mm. truly, truly is easier for a white woman um, to be treated well in America right now. Um, and I'm not happy to say that. I'm just saying it's true. If, if a police officer pulls me over, he's going to be nicer to me than he's going to be to people of other ethnic groups. And um, I'm, I'm somebody who, all right, we know we don't want to sleep with her, 
but and, and she used to have kids but now she's just this old mean old lady but she's a mean old lady and we'll listen to her because she's not going anywhere and she kind of doesn't care anymore right mm. and that's where i stand i can't believe i just said all of that hi everybody <laughs> i work with <laughs> well, what the archetype that's that uh, sounds uh, kind of belittling. Well, they say the crone, right? They get right. To the crone stage. Yeah, it's the well. I mean, it's the the maiden, the mother, and the crone. Um, yeah, the but womanhood. I, I guess that's one of yeah one of the things that sets Jackie Brown apart is there's a respect for age in Jackie. Not only with Jackie Brown, but with Max Cherry, those were like the only two sympathetic characters in the in the in the whole movie and and neither of them were spring chickens right and you know max jerry had seen some stuff too yeah and 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 she totally played him there's a part in it at the end she said are you scared of me and he was like yeah <laughs> and i was like you should be <laughs> you should be she's seen some stuff i mean yeah, there are memes on uh, facebook about you know you should be, be a little scared of women who are over 50 because they're out of you know what's to give yeah. um <laughs> So um, you're talking about Quentin Tarantino with, with Pulp Fiction, that uh, that was stuff nobody had ever seen, the out-of-sequence storytelling and stuff. Um, I, I feel like his, his, the musical selections are another huge part of, of yeah. what makes his movies, you know, Tar Tarantino movies. Yeah. Um, what, like what do you think? character. Like the soundtrack is a character in his films. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an interesting way to put it. What, what do you think his musical choices are? are what, what he's trying to infuse into the film with those? Um you know, I, I, a time and a place. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about in Jackie Brown, there's a lot of R&B stuff from the 70s in there that honestly I'd never heard just because I, a little white girl, grew up in West Virginia. I knew a lot about country in the 70s, but I didn't know a lot about R&B. It's beautiful stuff. I love it. The um, Del Delphonics are, are mentioned I, there specifically. I, I became a Delphonics fan because of it. Strawberry, what is it? Strawberry... 47. So there's a song called Strawberry Letter 23. I'd never heard it before, but it's a fantastic song. Um, Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack. Um, there's, uh, um, you know, Natural High. I'd heard that before. Um, Street Life. Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time by the Delphonics. I mean, this is good stuff. Mm. And then in the middle of the whole thing, they throw in Tennessee Stud by Johnny Cash, which is about as far away i mean that's so max cherry right yeah Tennessee's good. and then meanwhile you've got um you've got pam greer with the delphonics and um um uh bobby womack i mean it's just ah oh, it's beautiful the way that it's integrated in there yeah um I, I feel like uh, you, you mentioned this is not a typical Tarantino movie and maybe because that was written for Pam Greer like that, but it also just doesn't seem to get brought up as much as, as um, Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction or Inglorious Bastards. And it seems to be a little overlooked. And do, do you think that's because it has kind of this old, older skew too, where it's uh, the, the main characters are, are uh, you know, have, have a few years behind them and uh, or why do you why do you think it isn't uh you know top of the list for most people's tarantino films well unfortunately i feel like a lot of people like tarantino because there's so much action and there's so much violence which is mm. unfortunate because he's a fantastic filmmaker for other reasons you know um and one of the things that he does is he takes genres and he takes them to the almost to the what do i want to say to the most illogical level he possibly can right so for example the other tarantino film i mean look i loved reservoir dogs i loved pulp fiction um 
But the other film that I really like is Death Proof. And I remember that my nephew, um, who was a teenager at the time, so, have you seen Death Proof? You know, I haven't, no. Okay, so Death Proof is part of like a two movie setup. One was, it was called Grindhouse. Um, oh, that, I remember that one, yeah. Okay, so he he made a movie called Death Proof, and then somebody else made a movie called um, Planet Terror, which I wasn't as interested in, although it was good too. And they were based on um, old kind of movies of the 60s and 70s. The thing that I loved about Death Proof was that it reminded me a lot of these kind of psychological horrors from the 1970s. But when you saw them in, in the 1970s on television, um, it was usually like at four o'clock in the afternoon when you got home from school hmm. and they had been cut and they had been spliced and they had taken March parts of them out. Some of it didn't make any sense. Um, there were whole scenes missing. Um, Kevin Smith said about it. He, when it, he didn't realize that there was a whole beginning scene to Planet of the Apes and he mentioned it until he got the laser disc because he would come home from school at four o'clock and he would watch movies and Planet of the Apes was on. Well, I was the same way. I came home at four o'clock and they were always showing the Planet of the Apes movies and I could mm -hmm. practically have the whole thing memorized. But lo and behold, it does turn out there's a whole beginning part that they never showed on ABC at four o'clock in the afternoon for all of us kiddies who come home to watch the movies. Um, and so apparently also what happened with a lot of these films is that um, they would go from one theater to another. And of course, they were on reel to reel fi film. And like if there was, if the film broke in Omaha and then it got sent to Cleveland, then they just kind of spliced it together and the splicing wasn't that great. And so it would skip scenes and kind of cut, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the the thing behind Death Proof is this, this serial killer who's killing women with his car. And it was kind of a, uh, a premise that was pretty cheesy and it was very obviously kind of death porn psychological scariness which was very popular in the late 70s and the early 80s and it was not uncommon if you saw a film like that like play misty for me or something like that to see it all spliced up and so it's kind of a take on that right when they put grindhouse out they um they actually made trailers for films that didn't exist like slasher films like one of them was leprechaun and it was a slasher film in the same vein as as silent night deadly night mm. or um or no excuse me leprechaun was a real film it was about thanksgiving it was a slasher film about thanksgiving and like you would see people doing things and knives would be cut into turkeys and that sort of thing that was one of them another one was called machete which i think they finally made a movie out of because it was just so ridiculously fun anyway so the point that i'm trying to make here is that there's kind of this genre of film that is really cheesy really sleazy really almost uncomfortably psychologically weird mm. and 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 quentin tarantino embraced that so you never so my nephew i remember my nephew saying death proof was terrible it was a horrible movie why would you be interested in that and i'm like because i watched the four o'clock movie every day after school when i was 12 years old and this is the kind of stuff you would see and he was like oh i had no idea um and so i love that stuff that tarantino does where he takes something and takes it to the most illogical place that he can possibly take it i mean he does the same thing in kill bill i mean you take this this genre of the revenge western samurai film and take it to a place that is just unbelievably over the top right mm -hmm. um and and so I, 
that's what I love about Tarantino. But I do think that the people who get excited about him, the mainstream audience, gets excited because there's a lot of hacking, there's a lot of slashing, there's a lot of horror, there's a lot of body horror. Um, and they don't realize that there's a lot more going on. Another film of his I liked a lot was The Hateful Eight. And one of the things, I don't know that I could watch it too many times because it gets pretty out of control there. Mm -hmm. But it's a great film because what it's saying is it's all very well and good to talk about the West and what people were doing at that time and how romanticized the West is. But my gosh, these people were, some of them were butchers. I mean, if you've been in the Civil War, by the time you got out of that mess, you were psychologically damaged. Mm -hmm. And if you had serial killers, which did exist at that time, they may come into your end and kill everybody. You don't know. And you may have to nail the door shut in the middle of a blizzard in the middle of the uh, Midwest because it, I mean, like you didn't have great doors. It's not like you had a door like you did here. You could be freezing to death. All of those things are are very accurate in many ways. And he really explodes the genre of the Western that way. Okay. That's what I like about Quentin Tarantino. And that's why I think um, uh, uh, um, um, Jackie Brown isn't as, as exciting to many people. I like the films that aren't as exciting to many people because of what he's doing. And other people are looking at the hack and slash factor. Gotcha. Now, one one little thing that I, I just wonder about is Robert De Niro's role. I mean, you know, here is he's all always lauded as one of the best actors of all time, but he, he takes this role. There's, there's not a lot to it. I mean, he's just this, this, you know, ex-con recently out of jail, um, you know, kind of a dumb guy um, doesn't really have much to contribute. Why, why do you think Robert De Niro um, signed on for a role like that where, you know, he really had to check his ego, it seems. Well, I think because it was so well-written. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I really think, and also, yeah, he plays a dumb guy, but I thought he did a great job with that too. I mean, yeah. I, spoiler alert, the scene where he just turns around and kills the girl, right? Mm, okay. um, I love that because it was so unexpected. But what do you expect somebody who's a dumb ex-con who just got out of prison to do? I mean, the guy is a horrible person. He's a murderer. <laughs> That's why he's in prison. And you put him up in this place with, with um, uh, some... Uh, woman who just wants to smoke dope all the time and sit around in her bikini and is a, as a pain in the butt. And if he gets irritated, he doesn't know how to handle that. I mean, you know, so if she gets irritating, he does what comes natural to him. He kills her. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all I wanted to ask about Jackie Brown. Did you have uh, any other points that, uh, that we should make before we wrap that up? Mm hmm. I don't think so. I think mm -hmm. I, I think I'm good. I, I just I really love the film. It, every time I see it, I just get happy all over again. And I don't know. I hope somebody else can watch it and enjoy realizing that Jackie Brown's smarter than everybody else in the film and never kills anybody, never shoots anybody. Yeah. All right. Hopefully we get a few more people to watch it. Thanks again so much for, for coming on. This was a lot of fun to talk about your favorites. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. Anybody wants to talk about my favorite things? I'm all, I'm all for it. <laughs> Thanks again. All right. That wraps up another favorite book, song, and movie with episode four. We're getting a little track record here. Four episodes in the can. As always, the uh, links to the book, song, and movie are in the show notes. Hope you enjoyed them. If you have your own favorites you'd rather talk about, well, email me at booksongmovie at gmail.com and we'll try to get you in the pipeline. 
Um, looking at the four episodes we uh, we have already, three out of the four of them were women. But looking at my pipeline, it's like nothing but guys lined up. I got six more episodes, uh, you know, on the calendar, and they're all guys. So uh, that needs to be remedied. So uh, ladies, reach out and uh, let's talk about your favorite book, song, and movie. If you caught us in a podcatcher, we are on the web at booksongmovie.com. Twitter is at booksongmovie. Facebook group is booksongmovie. And Instagram is booksongmoviepod. That's all the socials um, that are pretty empty right now for our fourth podcast. I guess I should get on TikTok as well and do, uh, or they call it a book talk since this is book related. But uh, social media is just exhausting, so I probably won't get around to that for a while. All right. Thanks for coming on. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep watching, and hope to uh, see you again soon. Mm -hmm.